Hi everyone, Daniela Camboni here for ITM Trading. I just want to say a very special thank you for all the emails you're writing and telling me how much you're enjoying this Outlook 2024 series with our experts. We'll have more great content heading your way. And I just want to say I feel for you. I, I you know, I know a lot of you feel uncertain about the the future and what we're heading into in 2024. So if you have any questions about the topics or if you need help building a strategy as we head into the new year, you can always reach out uh, to one of my colleagues over at ITM Trading. The Calendly link is uh, in the description below in the in the video box. So feel free to reach out and set up a time to speak with someone. And we're going to get to our Outlook series right now. Hi, this is Daniela Camboni and welcome to the new Daniela Camboni show here on ITM Trading. I want to say it's the same but different because we're on ITM Trading now. But I am joined by a very familiar face to those of you who have followed me for, for quite some time, Rick Rule of Rule Investment Media uh, with a beautiful, and I'm very jealous of the tan right there, Rick. Uh, recently returned from Thailand and Malaysia with my wife, Bonnie, for a well-needed and uh, frankly well-deserved vacation. So I'm delighted, despite the fact that I live in the cold, wet Northwest, uh, <laughs> to be a little more Yes. Blonde. Well, I was going to say, I hope you're finally enjoying some of your retirement. I say retirement like this because I don't think I've seen anyone work as much during retirement. Hence your Battle Bank logo today. Uh, Daniela, I love working. Uh, the truth is, this is my idea of a retirement. It's just great. I, I hope at some point in time, Daniela, if you haven't achieved that, that you, you do get to achieve it. It's a wonderful place well, to be. Well, I, I, uh, I, I love, I absolutely love what I do. I, want, I always say I, I, I consider myself uh, very lucky and, and blessed to be doing something I love so much. And I know that for you, it's so important to educate folks. Um, that's really at the root of, of everything you really do, Rick. And I've been getting so much feedback regarding this outlook. People love the outlook series. You know, I bring on some of our, you know, our, our greatest guests, obviously. And the amount of emails I get, Rick, of people saying, I'm lost, I'm confused, I'm scared heading into 2024. So what I want to do with you a little bit today is obviously uh, talk a little bit about, you know, things that are concerning you on the horizon, what people should be doing to, to prepare and to feel really less scared and uncertain as they, you know, face the future here. Let's start with what you just said. Don't be scared. Be concerned. I have watched people for 50 years in my professional career say it's impossible to get ahead because of Trump yeah. or because of Biden or because of Trudeau. If you don't try to get ahead, you aren't going to get ahead. Your biggest risk is to the left of your right ear and to the right of your left ear. <laughs> Despite how scary things might seem to you out there, uh, other generations have faced troubles too, say World War II or the Great Depression. Do not be afraid. Do not become inactive. Look at the circumstance in front of you. Be concerned where you need to and take action. But do not use world events as an excuse to fail or an excuse to quit. That's where you start. The world will be much, much, much better 15 years from now and 20 years from now. We have to get from here to there. And I think that's going to be a challenge. And I think that's what we should talk about in the interview. But absolutely, well, about positively, that. do not be afraid. Be concerned. Those are very, very, very different instructions. 
you think we will be in a better place 15 years from now? Absolutely. The Based March on what? Why? The march of technology. Uh, Daniela, when you and I first interviewed, I had to go to Toronto. I had to sit in a booth. Uh, and there was a, an array of equipment to record us that filled a truck. Now you're at home. The producers are at their home. I'm at my home. Uh, and we do all of this online. The march of technology, among other things, uh, has been fantastic. And it will continue to be fantastic. And, and with the Internet, uh, the ability of people to get knowledge outside of formal channels uh, is increasing. Uh, I used to say in interviews between you and I that in places like the United States, uh, the culture and the education was so good that five or six pimply-faced youngsters could commandeer a garage in Sunnyvale, California, and out would pop Google. Uh, and I made the point that because of technology and because of communications, our individual initiative generated enough utility to fund our collective stupidity. What's changed, Daniela, is that because of things like the Internet, because Stanford University or, uh, offers free courses online, as an example, that garage doesn't have to be in Sunnyvale, California anymore. That garage could be in Lagos, Nigeria. That garage could be in Jakarta. So I absolutely believe that the democratization of opportunity of education and communication means that 15 or 20 years from now, humankind will be in a much better position than it is today. Unfortunately, oh. we have some challenges to get to from here to there. We could disrail that project, uh, that progress, with something like a nuclear war. <laughs> Look, I didn't think we would be talking about this today, but this is why I love talking with you, because I never know where our conversations are going to go. And they're always, uh, you know, end up being beautiful surprises. So let me challenge you with this, because I don't have to tell you that obviously technology comes with, yes, the positives, as you, as you say, but also a lot of negatives, a lot of dangers. I mean, if I reflect back on my childhood, like just the other day, I was thinking, you know, it's really sad. My children, who are now three and a half, you know, when they enter their teen years, will never understand the excitement of getting a cassette that your friend made for you and wrote down all the music, you know, or just taking your bike and not being glued to this right and 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 d determining your worth based on what you know whether instagram thinks you're you know popular or not or whatever or this is what you should be looking at i mean all that social media pressure i mean couldn't you have the counter argument rick that life was just simpler and better and yes we didn't have these technological advancements of course but in a way life was just easier Daniela, I would be willing to argue with you. In fact, I'd be willing to place a bet that because your children's mother is Daniela Cambone, they're going to be superstars. The <laughs> idea that well, Instagram is going to have more of an impact on your children's future than you do uh, is, pardon me for saying it, but an idiotic argument. To the extent that you live in a neighborhood where your children can't ride their bicycles, if that's important to you, move. It's under your control. You make a lot of money. Uh, move. I think your children's future is going to be fantastic. As for that cassette, they're not going to have to buy the cassette. They are, <laughs> they are going to be able to create the same product that you had to buy for free online and distribute it for their, to their friends. It yeah. doesn't have to be pornographic. Whether it's pornographic or not really depends on the input of their mother and father. 
Too many people in the world have decided that they're consigning their future and their children's future to their government. Now, that's a mistake. That's truly pornographic. It's truly obscene. But I would absolutely, positively be willing to bet that your children, as a consequence of your efforts, are going to be superstars. There's all kinds of stuff for them to get online. What they're interested in is what you teach them. Let's, um, and I, I appreciate th those insights. I want to pivot and talk about the Fed's pivot now. How's that for a pivot? <laughs> I want to get your thoughts on what you make um, of the latest from the Federal Reserve. Now, cuts are coming. Are they going to get the soft landing? I mean, Wall Street basically rejoicing here. Uh, it looks like they're finally in line with the Fed. I mean, what do you make of uh, what Powell's been saying? And what well, he plans to do. You've asked me a lot. Uh, first of I all, did. Wall Street doesn't care much about Main Street. It, calls, it, ca it calls, uh, cares about Wall Street. Lowering the cost of capital in a capital-intensive business is always welcome. So Wall Street is not happy. They're ecstatic. Uh, it may be that as a consequence of a discussion of lower interest rates, that the Fed, by jawboning, can restart confidence in the economy. Uh, in other words, it may be that the narrative around lower interest rates obviates the need for them to lower interest rates, although I think there's a strong consensus that they ought to lower interest rates. Uh, I believe that they ought to ignore interest rates, but I'm a minority of one uh, in a very, very, very broad universe. So let's talk about interest rates, nominal interest rates and real interest rates. Let's do the arithmetic and get away from the narrative. I would suggest to you, uh, Daniela, that the market believes that inflation has been tamed. Mm -hmm. Ray Dalio doesn't, Jim Grant doesn't, but you know, the smart people, uh, people like Joe Biden, Donald Trump, uh, they would tell you that inflation has been tamed because they look at something called the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. And I think any discussion of this pivot involves a discussion of the CPI, uh, inflation and real interest rates. The CPI is purported to be a cost of living index, which it is not. In the first instance, the CPI is a hedonistically adjusted, created in, uh, index. The big thinkers tell you what your computer's worth, which may be different than what you paid for it. They tell you, too, what your house is worth, irrespective of what you paid for it. So it's a constructed index. You have to believe their hedonistic adjustments. You and I have discussed before, too, that when it's inconvenient, the CPI doesn't include food or fuel. Now, that's problematic for me, Daniela, because I like to eat. Uh, but the most troubling part to me about the CPI and about this whole interest rate discussion is that the CPI doesn't include the cost of tax, government, a cost mm -hmm. of living index, which doesn't include the largest component of the cost of your living and mine, isn't a cost of living index. As a thought experiment, I looked at my own household expenditures over the last two years and concluded that my fully loaded cost of living, including tax, meant that the purchasing power of my savings, U.S. dollar denominated, ah. was declining at 7% compounded. So when we talk about a nominal interest rate on the U.S. 10-year Treasury at 4.1, we're talking about a nominal return, not a real return. The real return would be subtracting 7, the rate of deterioration of the purchasing power, real rate of deterioration of the purchasing power in U.S. dollar denominated savings from 4.1 the nominal interest rate, which means, from my point of view, the U.S. 10-year Treasury, rather than yielding 4.1, 
reduces your purchasing power at 2.9% compounded. I believe that the consensus exists among the voters, among the electorate, to allow for a nominal interest rate decline, which is to say a larger negative real interest rate. And I think the consequence of their doing that will be to restore business confidence and exacerbate inflation while permitting the real sin, increased government spending, to accelerate rather than decelerate. Is this something I'm afraid of? No, it's something that's inevitable. So it's something that I prepare for. But when you talk about the Fed pivot, that's what I see coming. Uh, and I think the consequences are easy to determine, not from a Republican narrative, not from a Democratic narrative, but rather from simple arithmetic. How, when you say it's something you prepare for, how are you preparing or how have you prepared? I believe that there are a couple inevitable outcomes. Uh, one will be the gradual realization uh, among investors uh, and later among savers that core inflation is much higher than people believe. And I think that people will begin to change their savings habits. Uh, as an example, there are a lot of people now who hold deposits in banks that pay them no interest, either because they're convenient or they believe those banks are too big to fail. This or they don't know other options. Or, or, they, or they don't know other options. But that's their job. The idea that they rely on the big thinkers to tell them what the other options are, when the big thinkers would rather borrow their money for no yield, <laughs> it is a sort of a false outlook. Uh, I, I believe, too, that traditional inflation hedges, uh, either the Warren Buffett-style ones, which is to say global-dominated global businesses that have pricing power within their business, or the traditional uh, inflation hedges, including, of course, uh, precious metals, will become increasingly attractive. Uh, I think, too, that uh, the higher cost of capital associated with low uh, nominal interest rates uh, and uh, high inflation means that the value of existing productive assets will become uh, higher because the cost after inflation cost to build new assets, new apartment buildings, new factories, new roads will increase. Uh, I think looking back at the investment strategies that worked for us in the decade of the 70s is something that we're going to have to do now. Perversely, I think in the very near term uh, that the opposite strategy probably works, uh, despite the fact that uh, real interest rates are negative and nominal interest rates are fairly low. A lower nominal interest rate, which is to say if the Fed succeeds in reducing the interest rate two or three times, uh, ironically, that'll be very good for the bond market. I, I think you're setting up a bull trap. <laughs> you know, I, I think that you're going to get capital gains in something that will later on uh, self-destruct. But I think in the very near term, one impact of lower interest rates would be a fairly strong long bond market, uh, which I say is is a perverse incentive because I think that investors who get trapped in that in the three to four year time frame will lose an awful lot of money. You mentioned purchasing power. Let's focus on that because it's yep. such a key point. And obviously, Argentina comes to mind. And I want to get your thoughts on a Malay. You know, it's taking radical measures, uh, slashing the value of the currency. I mean, he said he want he wants to end the central bank in Argentina. I guess my question here is, 
we often hear, okay, well, that's Argentina. That's something that could never happen in, in the United States. What do you say when, when you hear that talk? Well, I, you know, first of all, you can imagine my delight watching him on TV saying, this ministry, gone. This one, gone. This one, gone. <laughs> well, he's a hoop. This one, gone. Right. Uh, and then standing up with a chainsaw saying, this is my approach to government. The idea that there is somebody in government with a chainsaw uh, is a wonderful narrative. <laughs> but it's narrative. Uh, governments exist in the eyes of the citizenry to steal. What the citizens want is to steal from their neighbors and give to themselves. Uh, Malay uh, has no money. The Argentine government doesn't have the ability to benefit sadly, to redistribute to anybody. In addition, he doesn't yet, at least, control parliament. So much of what he talks about is at present narrative. I am delighted that the Argentine society came together in a protest vote, and that, uh, importantly, the protest vote in his favor it, it included the poor, who understood that the alleged theft, which was taking place on their behalf, uh, really was taking place at their expense. I'm uh, I'm delighted about the social awakening that occurred in Argentina. I'm nervous about the ability of uh, the current government to fashion over time a consensus of the citizenry when the citizenry believes that the government exists to favor them. Uh, that's a problem. I think in the United States... We are so wedded to what we do. We are so wedded to the concept that the purpose of government is to take from others and deliver to ourselves that we're a long ways away. Let's, let's look at one example. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, entitlements. Uh, if you're looking at the U.S. deficit, one way to do it is to look at me and visualize me as a deficit. I'm an old, fat, bald, white, rich guy. Uh, my generation, the baby boomers, voted ourselves all kinds of really cool stuff, but we forgot to pay for it. We're leaving the bill with you, Daniela. Uh, is that right? Uh, there's a political consensus in the United States that says that that is right. The idea that there's $140 trillion in inheritable wealth in the United States passing from the baby boomers to other generations uh, is held up uh, as an excuse for the social transfer. It's interesting that if you look at federal government debt, which is to say on balance sheet liabilities at 33 trillion, and off balance sheet liabilities, according to the Congressional Budget Office, entitlements, the net present value of entitlements, that number is $140 trillion too. So we're leaving you nothing, but we are increasing your debt by $2 trillion a year. There is a broad spread political consensus that says that this ignorance of arithmetic in favor of narrative is fair. But if I was your age, particularly if I was com uh, concerned about, uh, in your place, your children, I wouldn't think it was fair at all. You know, even if it's just narrative, okay, he's also spoken about adopting the U.S. dollar. Yep. Curious to get your thoughts. Again, I said, even if it's just narrative and it's just a zombie, zombie play here, right? 
with so many countries wanting to dump U.S. dollars, what does this say about Argentina? Well, what does this say about the U.S. dollar and how it's viewed in the world, that there are still countries yearning to adopt the U.S. dollar? So my question is centered around the fact that we talk so much about, you know, the demise of the U.S. dollar, never going anywhere. What does it, what does it tell us about the status of the U.S. dollar or does it say nothing? Our uh, mutual friend who, of course, lives in Argentina, Doug Casey, describes the U.S. dollar as the worst currency in the world with the sole exception of all the others. And I continue to believe that. I'm 70 years of age. I think the U.S. dollar will be the world's reserve currency for the balance of my lifetime. I think that U.S. hegemony will be eroded as opposed to eliminated. Uh, I, I suspect that the so-called BRICS currency will evolve, if it does, into a settlement mechanism as opposed to a currency. And I think, ironically, that the BRICS currency will, at least for the balance of my lifetime, be valued and exchangeable for U.S. dollars. Uh, I think the president of Argentina at once made an ideological choice uh, to align himself with what is still a freer society than the BRICS society. At the same time, he paid attention to arithmetic. Uh, there is no debt market in BRICS. There isn't a real debt market in Yuan. Uh, the BRICS well, first of all, it doesn't exist, but it isn't convertible yet. Uh, there, There is no depth. I, I remember once Doug Casey saying to me, uh, and to you, I think, in, in a conference, the U.S. dollar is an IOU nothing. The euro, with 17 or 18 backers, is a who owes you nothing. The BRICS, with such stalwart credits, <laughs> as formerly Argentina, <laughs> and if you look at who's applying to join it, uh, would likely be fashioned a nobody owes you anything. Remember that an unbacked currency is just that, an unbacked currency. Uh, and imagine, uh, if you will, in the BRICS, let's say that China runs a trade surplus with Russia. And at the end of the year, uh, Mr. Xi goes up to Moscow with a billion BRICS uh, and said, I'd... Uh, this is gold-backed. I'd like my gold. Uh, Mr. Putin says, no, I think you should keep your bricks. Uh, how is Mr. Xi going to enforce convertibility unless the gold has already been surrendered from a sovereign holder to a central repository, which none of the BRICS nations, with the exception of China, are willing to do? And China is willing to do it if the repository is in China. Let me ask you this. I want to get back to your point about life being better 15 years from now. Right. Because in the past, we've spoken about, I would say ad nauseum, about central bank digital currencies. In fact, you made headlines uh, in an interview uh, that you said it would be the greatest threat to Americans more than cancer. Now, people yep. took that and ran with that headline and whatnot, and you explained it afterwards. But how can life be better if we will be ushering in central bank digital currencies, Rick? If we do usher in a monopoly central bank digital currency, which I don't think we will, uh, then my bet is out of the window. If the citizens of the world are willing to consign uh, the fruits of their labor and their intelligence, the benefit of the risks that they take 
to the government. If we are collectively that stupid, then the rosy future that I'm suggesting that we enjoy becomes less rosy. If you look for examples as to what the risks might be, look at Canada, uh, where Prime Minister Trudeau overrode the rule of law uh, and seized the assets of his political opponents extrajudiciously. Look at the fondness that go, the governments are expressing for a currency that they can cancel, not merely seize, if they don't look like the way you act. Look at the overprint or the potential for the overprint of social credit scores on social media, a technology that's in place in China now, with the ability of uh, countries to cancel their citizenry's wealth and savings if they disagree with the citizenry's political beliefs. I don't think that this will occur. Uh, perhaps I have too much faith in humankind. Well, well, okay, so let's go there. If, I mean, you're basically hoping that people will resist, right? Resist the entry way of central bank digital currencies. I am. Uh, but, right? Go ahead. But yep. um, the IMF, I mean, has put out a guidebook for countries, basically right. outlining how to usher in central bank digital currencies. This received very little media attention. In fact, you know, name me one mainstream media that really talks about central bank digital currencies. So my question is, well, why aren't they talking about it? Do they think it's a narrative that's going to bore people and it doesn't get enough views? But how are people supposed to even be educated when I don't think most people even know that this notion exists? And yet here's the IMF come like they're not even hiding it anymore, saying this is the future. Like we can't turn our backs on central bank digital currencies. Uh, I'm always interested in the IMF as an acronym. Uh, you could use those letters uh, to come to a different description uh, of the organization, <laughs> which I'll leave for right. viewers' imaginations. Uh, with regards to your uh, description of the mainstream media, I, I think it's worthy to note that the mainstream media has been losing market share for a very long time. Yes. Uh, and, and I think that that's one of the reasons why. Uh, mercifully, uh, part of my rosy view of the world has to do with the emergence of many, but not enough, Daniela Cambonis. Uh, and I think it's up to the citizenry to educate themselves uh, as opposed to be passive recipients of the pablum uh, offered up by government-sponsored media. But I'm obviously reflecting helpful. back on 2023. I mean, banking crisis, banking failures come. Yep. Uh, top of mind, and you're one of the greatest experts to comment on the systemic risks to the banking sector. I mean, do you think this is something that will spill over in 2024, or has this become a news narrative that people have just rolled over and are bored by now? Uh, in the very near term, some of the crisis in the banking sector uh, gets uh, alleviated with lower nominal interest rates. Uh, which means that we bail out the banks uh, at the hands of the depositors. We take money from the depositors and we give it to the banks. One of the great uh, crosses that the banking industry has to bear is their own historic greed, where the banking industry uh, had very 
short-term deposits and they lent money for a time spread on long-term assets. When the interest rate rose, their cost of capital increased while their return on capital employed decreased to the point where if you take many banks in the country right now and you look at their loan portfolios and mark them to market, which by the way, the Fed doesn't require them to do, they're in fact insolvent. If you lower the interest rate, it lowers their cost of capital at the same time as it increases the nominal value of their bond portfolios. So one of the things that I think that the Fed is attempting to do is to reflate the banking sector in the United States. And I suspect that for calendar 2024, they'll be uh, successful in doing that. Interesting. The so banking reinstating sector, confidence in the banking sector? I, I think they will restore confidence in the banking sector. I think that confidence will be misplaced. Uh, but I do think that they're going to be able to restore confidence in the banking sector. When you say the confidence is misplaced, do you not feel comfortable holding cash in the bank? I select my banks very carefully, Daniela. <laughs> uh, I, I really do. Uh, there are a group of banks out there that are actually well capitalized. Uh, the FDIC says a well capitalized bank has assets of 7%. Uh, relative equity of 7% relative to total assets. I prefer a number more like 10. Uh, there are uh, community banks, uh, as an example, Bank of Hammett in California, uh, with uh, equity at 15%. There are bigger regional banks, Farmers and Merchants Bank of Long Beach, First National Bank of Alaska come to mind, with equity at 20% of total assets. Uh, I don't believe that people probably uh, for the next year need to worry too much, but I wouldn't want to have more than $250,000 on deposit at any one bank, and I would select banks that are well capitalized. I also think that depositors, although they don't want to, they want Rick Rule to tell them where to bank and Daniela Camboni to tell them where to bank. I think that depositors need to get from their institution something called a statement of financial condition. I don't think that, there's a, that there is a place on big bank balance sheets for speculative positions and derivatives. I think derivatives have a place to hedge interest rate risks, both on the deposit side and the liability side of banks' balance sheets. But I don't think that banks ought to be speculating or trading in derivatives for their own account. The idea that a big, big, big bank has nominal value of $50 trillion of derivatives against a $500 billion balance sheet is a true insanity. The banks will say, well, this is a nominal valuation, that one side of the derivative trade offsets the other side of the derivative trade. Yeah, if everybody pays. But if there's a counterparty failure, <laughs> very different. I want to ask you this question, just now that I have it top of mind, because a lot of my Canadian audience will write in and say, you got to ask Rick Rule, well, is the situation the same? If you're in Canada with the banks, is the banking system in Canada healthier or does it is it exposed to the same risks that its U.S. counterparties have? It is healthier as opposed to healthy. Canada has a banking oligopoly, uh, which means it's a protected industry in Canada, which means that the Canadian government is causing the Canadian taxpayer and the Canadian depositor and the Canadian borrower to subsidize their banks. And in that sense, the Canadian banks are healthier than the American banks. The Canadian banks have in certain circumstances used that legislation to take even more risk. There is no requirement that the Canadian banks, despite the protection that they enjoy 
from the federal government of Canada at the expense of Canadians uh, have lessened their derivatives exposure. Uh, the Canadian banks, like their American counterparts, have lent long, which is to say the duration of their assets are mismanaged relative to the duration of their liabilities, their deposits. And Canadian banks, too, while they have been more conservative as lenders than American banks have, too many Canadian banks try to participate as lenders to industries that they don't have enough of a background in. If you don't understand an industry well enough to understand the value of the collateral uh, and to understand uh, the efficacy of the financial projections that you have been given, you don't understand the industry well enough to lend to it. And Canadian banks, like American banks, have become real yield whores. Uh, they are willing to take credit risk in return for yield in industries that they don't understand as well as they ought to. Uh, you know, I guess as we wrap our outlook uh, 2024 with you, Rick, I mean, we obviously talked about various things here, life, economy, whatnot. Uh, but, I, you know, you said you're, you're never scared, right? You're always prepared. Uh, but as we head into 2024, I always ask you this. Is there anything that really keeps you up at night? I know central bank digital currencies, you hope won't come, but I know it's one of them. Um, is there anything else that you're really eyeing and concerned about the potential that we should for, have our radar on? The potential for a liquidity event. Uh, the idea that one or more black swans that we may or may not be able to identify ahead of time reduces faith in the market to the extent that there's a liquidity squeeze circa 2008. It's important to note that when the 2008 event took place, Government debt as a percentage of GDP was around 25%. Government debt as a percentage of GDP is 110% today. So the amount of stimulus, the amount of printing that the government could do, the amount of spending that the government could do in the face of a liquidity event like 2008 is substantially constrained. So a circumstance that caused a complete erosion of confidence and a liquidity squeeze really scares me. Uh, what scares me probably the most in that context in the United States is the proliferation of high yield junk bond ETFs. There's a whole generation of Americans that have become yield chasers because of artificially low yields, and they're taking credit risks that they don't understand. The ETFs themselves are highly liquid they trade billions and billions of dollars a day in $10,000 and $20,000 instruments. Their owners, I think, are naive with regards to credit. Uh, the underlying instruments that those ETFs own, over-the-counter junk bonds, are highly illiquid. And a circumstance where there was a concern about credit, like we saw in 2008 with mortgage-backed securities, that caused the retail holders of these credit instruments to sell them, and cause the ETFs to have to sell the underlying assets to satisfy the redemptions truly scares me. Um, when an ETF gets sold and the manager must redeem, he or she uh, must sell the underlying assets. And if the underlying assets are illiquid, it gives rise to what we used to cynically call an owl bond. An owl bond is when the, owl bond. An owl bond is when the portfolio manager calls the broker and says, sell this bond. And the broker says, to who? 
to whom? And that truly terrifies me, the idea that $3 trillion uh, in junk bond ETFs face a disintermediation phase and the managers can't sell the underlying instruments. Uh, that keeps me awake and what? potential for some what? moron to chuck some nuclear instrument at some other moron well, keeps me well, let awake. Me, let me ask you that. Um, for the folks at home listening, thinking, okay, well, let's play out that scenario. How does it trickle down and affect me on my day-to-day -day life? Uh, if you had a credit crisis uh, and lending institutions as a consequence of the credit crisis uh, marked internally their books to market and understood that they were broke, they wouldn't trade with other institutions because they would assume they were broke too. Uh, and I think that you could easily have a replay of 2008. If you remember back to 2008, uh, most conventionally priced financial assets, at least in terms of price, fell by half. We uh, papered over the difficulty because we counterfeited and spent our way out of that conundrum, which is to say the Fed went to war against the lack of confidence. The Fed was able to do that because there was enough confidence in the Fed. That was before they had created $7 trillion in counterfeit instruments. <laughs> uh, and there was enough fiscal ability uh, in the United States with uh, aggregate on-balance sheet liabilities of the U.S. government equal to 25% of GDP that they could do it. The aggregate uh, on-balance sheet indebtedness relative to GDP now is 110%. The budget deficit that we're running on balance sheet is $2 trillion. And society's willingness to allow them uh, to counterfeit, which is to say to engage in quantitative easing and to believe that it will have a successful outcome is more in question now than it was then. Uh, well, on that note, I want to wish you and Bonnie a wonderful holiday season. Uh, Merry Christmas. Actually, before I go, because we were talking about your retirement and we see how retired you are with Battle Bank, but you also have a boot camp, mining boot camp coming up. And we're going to uh, have the description for anyone interested in registering for Rickroll's boot camp, which I'll let him talk about in a second. But if, if you want to register, it will be in the description below on our YouTube page. So yeah. tell me about your boot camp. A couple closing remarks. The boot camp is, some, is part of something called Rural Investment Media. Uh, I offer all of your listeners the ability to submit their natural resource stocks to rural investment media, where I will rank them one to 10 uh, in the interest of investor education, among other things. Further to that education, a related website, Rural Classroom, has 200 hours of instructive material uh, as, as to how to become a better natural resource investor. You, it's all free, by the way. You practice that at the Rural Investment Symposium, a live event uh, in Boca Raton, Florida, coming this July, where I hope to see Ms. Daniela Cambone. Uh, but We're working in, on it as addition, moderator. <laughs> in addition, four times a year, uh, we do eight and a half hour uh, in-depth online conferences around certain natural resource investment themes. We did uranium when it was unpopular. We did silver. We did royalty and streaming. And we're doing an up, up, upcoming development on, uh, pardon me, uh, symposium on development stage companies. 
companies that aren't yet in production uh, with pre-feasibility studies or feasibility studies, companies under construction, companies in the boring part of the Lassonde curve. I say the boring part because I love investments that other people are find are boring. When development stage companies, or I should say if in development stage companies, successfully complete construction on time, on budget, and obtain nameplate capacity, it is very common that they double in price. Uh, investors avoid these companies because the press releases that they're uh, doing while they're under construction are characteristically boring. How many yards of concrete they've poured? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what yeah. stage their engineering is at. And the consequence of the fact that they're boring is that people avoid them because they're more interested in stimulation than making money. Uh, we hope to address that imbalance at the boot camp. Uh, it's important to note that we will give you more information in eight and a half hours than you can assemble or assimilate. That means that we will give you the ability to replay that boot camp over 12 months, which you will need to do. We charge you $99 for the boot camp. If you don't believe for any reason that you got your tuition's worth, email me and I'll refund you the money. He does. I would, I would appreciate it if you told me how I failed so I could make the product better, but there's no requirement. The financial risk is mine. If I don't deliver, like any other educational product that we offer, 100% gold-plated money-back guarantee. There you go, folks. There you go. Like I said, description and the link. Rick Rule, it's always good uh, being with you. And I know you were saying that this technology is great because we can do this, uh, you know, from the comfort of your home, my home. But wasn't it nice to just be in the same room together? And I look forward to doing that again. We can't use we can't use technology as an excuse not to break bread. That would be that would be tragic. There you go. All right. Well, happy holidays to uh, the Rule family. And thank you all for watching. I hope you're enjoying this Outlook 2024 because I sure am. I'm learning along with you. So keep tuning in. We'll have more incredible content coming your way. And don't forget to sign up at DanielaCombone.com. That's it for me. Thanks for watching.